Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. I saw all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Way, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Fairmount Plus. The Midnight Myth Podcast presents The Wheel of Ka, an exploration into the writings of Stephen King. What started as two friends rereading The Dark Tower has turned into an exploration of Stephen King's writing writ large. This month, we discuss insomnia. Say thank you, Sai. Scent of apples, taste of honey, texture of wool. But this time, Ralph's delight in the mingled sensory input could not mask the deep disquiet he felt as Lachesis turned him to the left and then walked him toward the edge of the flat hospital roof. Like many larger and more important cities, Derry seemed to have been built in the most geographically unsuitable place the original settlers could find. The downtown area existed on the steep sides of a valley. The Kendeskeeg River flowed sluggishly through the overgrown tangle of the barrens at this valley's lowest level. From their vantage point atop the hospital, Derry looked like a town whose heart had been pierced by a narrow green dagger. Except in the darkness, the dagger was black. Fellow travelers on the path of the beam, Wheel of Ka is back with another episode. Super stoked to be here, oh, man. Oh, me too. I, and I'm not going to make a reference to a musical artist that's incorrect this time. Like okay. Time. Do your best. I don't even remember. Wait, what, what did you make me to make? Remember I said that, that I was like, guess who's back, back again. And I said it was in sync. It's most certainly Eminem. Don't you remember this? I guess, you Controversy. know. Controversy. I really don't remember it at all. I'll tell you, that's how high that controversy ranked in importance oh, to me. Oh, man. It was rough no, on me for a few weeks. I have no memory of that whatsoever. But stupid. You know what, though? We I, always get things wrong. The thing with the podcasting as a hobby, this is a little how the sausage is made. There are two really ways you can go about it. You could be highly structured, super scripted, and and super edited, and there's nothing wrong with that. And then there's us. <laughs> That's just not what I want to do when I podcast. I want to have a conversation, which means it'll be a little more off the cuff. Oh, for sure. And you're going to make errors. Well, we don't like to talk, so. And listen, if we had, if we were making a profit doing this, we could hire a fact checker and a professional editor in a professional studio. We don't need that. Well, that would be nice, but we don't need a fact checker. I mean, it's good if you can afford it. We know the facts. Apparently, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those facts. Oh, well, no, no, no. Oh, no, not at all. Anyway, we are already way off topic in the oh. first minute. We are going to be talking about insomnia. Yes. I'm assuming you're following us on Twitter, at the Wheel of Ka, at the Midnight Myth. And you've been if keeping you're not, up. follow us. And if you haven't read Stephen King's book, Insomnia, obviously, Spoiler wall is up. Oh, yeah. And as always, we're going to be reading things through the lens of the Dark Tower. And this is a Dark Tower adjacent book, if there ever was one. Oh, yeah. There are so many things to talk about. You know, when we decided to do it, it was from a fan poll. And the runner-up was Insomnia. And in fact, they were tied. I know, right. And we had to do a second (laughs) 
poll it almost beat in, it. in which it won. And so we figured, since there were so many of you out there who wanted us to do Insomnia, we'll do it next. Having no idea, because Steve and I had not read the book before, Mm-mm. that both books would take place in Derry. So I've spent... Oh, yeah. I've, my imagination has spent the past 90 days, maybe longer, in the town of Derry. It's rough. It's a rough place to be, bro. Derry at a different time. And we have so much to talk about and so much to get into that I don't want to preamble too much. But just want to begin, as we have in every Wheel of Ka episode. Steve, how you feeling, man? I feel great. I'm a little tired. I'm overly excited to be back in the studio to be talking about this. Um, this one took me a little longer to read just because of life circumstances. I'm like hustling with three jobs right now and doing that whole life. Um, but I feel great. I, it's a beautiful day here in Philadelphia, although I will say this now. It is way too hot, way too early in the year. This kind of heat makes me mad, you know? I know we're going to talk about the Crimson King, but come on. I'm right here with you. This is, I think, the hottest day of 2021. So far. And it's scorching hot. Yeah, it's bad. Unrecognizably hot, especially for mid-May. Yeah, it's it's very strange. I couldn't agree with you more that it is too hot. You know, we're inside in the air conditioning. Which is my favorite place to be when it's hot. Fully vaccinated. (laughs) Yeah, completely. And that's a nice feeling to be fully vaccinated. Um, You know, to be able to hug friends again and be in the same room and not have to worry about, you know, killing our families and our friends, which I know that's blunt, but what else? You know, you've known me as blunt this entire time. And you and I are both COVID survivors. Yeah. Yeah. Both had COVID. You had COVID twice. Twice, apparently. Yeah. Apparently. One time I gave it to you. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that weren't true, but it were. It, it was. It is true. It we was. had a beer. We had been hanging out since we were neighbors, socially distant, respected. The whole time. We had one beer inside, and it happened to be the time that I had COVID. That one time. And you got COVID. And I, at the time, had not shown any symptoms. And anyway, we could talk about COVID all day. We How are, are you feeling? I am feeling really, really good. I obviously am a new father. My son is almost five months old. And he is amazing. It's been taking up a ton of my time and energy. I'm starting a business on my own for the first time. So Mm. that's been busy. Plus, I've been waking up at 5 a.m. and reading Stephen King books. Yeah. And that's my entire life. Yeah, you are a busy man. And the Stephen King books is probably one of the funnest parts, not my son. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Anyway, so let's let's roll let's up our jump sleeves. Into it. I, I say that I'm literally in a tank top. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's roll up our metaphoric sleeves. Let's start talking about insomnia. We Excellent. have we have a lot to get through. So the first thing I think we wanted to talk about, I think you'll take the lead on this, Steve. Let's get the business out of the way. Is where does insomnia fall in the Stephen King canon in terms of when did he write it? Mm-hmm. How does that relate to the Tower books? So of the 72 odd books that he's written, uh, this is the 34th book published by him. It was released on September 15th, 1994, and it is the 28th novel written under his own name, so not as Richard Bachman. Um, That's kind of, it was also released Right, not right after, but a f- couple of years after The Wastelands. And then there's a three-year gap 
between this and um, and Wizarding Glass. It draws heavily on Greek mythology for the metaphysical elements. We're going to talk about that. And very clearly, the most tower-adjacent book we've read yet. Yeah. I think. Especially towards the end when the sort of the climax, the third act, and the epilogue are all very tower-adjacent. Yeah, and there's not a whole lot of critical acclaim or, you know, the book wasn't bashed very much. It was accepted. It was accepted well. People bought it. People enjoyed it. Um, but I'm sure that if you're a Towerist or, or a fan of the Dark Tower in any way, that this book is probably a little bit more interesting. I know for me, it, it tickled me in a lot of ways being a Towerist. But I, I think thinking about it as a book on its own, I still think it's pretty fantastic. You know, it's interesting when you say that it came out at the time that it came out after Wastelands, before Wizard and Glass. For some reason, when I started reading this, I assumed the tower was done. Mm. And Stephen King was writing Insomnia with the, the tower hadn't been completed. Yeah, not even close. And it's insane to think, you know, one of the things that I've been doing is I've been trying to get to know Stephen King better in the best ways that I can. Now, obviously, he's not going to have a cup of coffee with me because Yet. he's Stephen King. Yet. And I don't expect him to. But there's a lot of Stephen King interviews throughout the years. He's done a lot. I follow him on Twitter. He's done a lot of social media. And one of the things that is consistent when Stephen King talks about his work is that the worst thing you can be as an author is bogged down in plot. Yeah, that's so interesting. But it's hard to think the plot of The Tower wasn't pretty mapped out by the time he wrote this considering the end of this book, which we'll, we'll get into. I might be putting the cart before the horse well, yeah, here. Yeah, because I think what's interesting is, just to comment on that, is that Wizard and Glass came out in 97, and then there's like a five-year gap between that five, six, and seven, which he wrote back to back to back. So I do think it's directly connected. I do think he probably had a lot of it mapped out. I mean, I can't speak for the man himself, but I... I feel like he had a lot mapped out, but not everything. To paraphrase Stephen King, and this is not the direct quote, but in preparation for this, it's on one of the interviews. It's on YouTube. I don't remember which one. I, I apologize. But he says, the worst thing you can do is get bogged down in plot. I write characters and situations. And Yeah, I mean, and he does it very well. And that makes a lot of sense, but clearly... Oh, there's, yeah, an overarching plot to his entire... And the dark, at, at the very least, he knew certain characters in this were going to matter to the Dark Tower, mm -hmm. and he specifically talks about Roland, the Rose, the Crimson King. And, you know, again, look, he's in a, a wildly intelligent person who is highly cynical and rather cheeky. So sometimes in his interviews, you know, maybe he's, uh, maybe he's acting like he's not bogged down by plot. I, bogged down, I think, is the is the key phrase there because I do think he thinks about it clearly. He's a writer, but I don't think he hyper focuses on plot as much as he does character, situation, or in what we would call in the acting world circumstance. They're given circumstances and the circumstances that the characters are going through. I I'm sure he hyper focuses on that, but for him to come out and be like, "No, I don't think about plot at all," I just think that's that's him being cheeky. Okay, there, you know what? That's fair. And that's not something I'd considered. And I think you're probably right. I think 
Stephen King doesn't want to get bogged down in plot, but obviously he knows there's plot. And I think Stephen King would just write a character in a room trying to figure out how to unlock it with a ghost in the room. Oh, yeah. And he would write 10,000 pages on uh, that. Easily. If his editor wasn't like, okay, where's we this ring going? It <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> All right, so fair point there. Let's, uh, let's read the back of the book, Insomnia. Hit me with it. Ralph Roberts never expected to leave out his remaining golden years mourning the death of his beloved wife. He also never expected to begin suffering from chronic insomnia for the first time in his life. Each night he wakes up a little bit earlier until he's barely sleeping at all. During his overnight walks, he's now observing some strange things going on here in Derry, Maine, and they're more than sleep-deprived hallucinations. There's definitely a mean streak that's always been running through this small New England city. Underneath its ordinary surface, awesome and terrible forces are at work. The dying has been going on in Derry for a long, long time, and Ralph will soon find that lack of sleep is the least of his worries. This is about Ralph Roberts. Yeah, definitely. This is about his wife dying and him getting insomnia. And this is about his neighbor snapping and beating his wife and finding out that his neighbor, Ed Deepno, is obsessed with the abortion issue and he thinks this entity called the Crimson King is sneaking fetuses out of the city mm-hmm. and he will do anything he can to stop it. And this is about sleep. And this is about a man who loses his ability to sleep as he can fall asleep fine, but he wakes up earlier and earlier. Mm-hmm. And this book gets insane. He ends up seeing auras. His friend, Lois, ends up suffering from the same condition and seeing auras. These auras are life forces that can be consumed, that give them supernatural powers. The literal Greek fates, the manifestation of the Greek fates appear, and there is a cosmic battle going on to save a little boy who's going to attend an anti-abortion pro-choice rally held by someone named Susan Day, where Ed Deepnew is going to blow it up and kill this boy. This boy's name is Patrick Danville, who ends up coming back in the last book of The Dark Tower. And Ralph ends up making a bargain with fate. He ends up saying he will give his own life to save the life of the baby Natalie, the neighbor, the neighbor's daughter. If he saves her life, he will replace her death with his own, And even though for the first time in his life, he meets his true soulmate in Lois, he ends up dying and Lois ends up consuming his aura at the very end. The Crimson King shows up. He turns into a catfish. Charles Pickering stabs in a Snoopy shirt. I'm sorry. (laughs) If, If I'm looking at you strangely, it's because I'm in awe and how you're just so succinctly able to sum up an entire book, it's 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 pretty brilliant, man. I'm I'm just I'm sorry. I just need to gush for a second because I'm always I'm always blown away by your recaps. I'm over here. If people could see me, I'm over here like uh huh uh huh. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. What can that's I say? That's what I read. I'm good about talking about great art. <laughs> what can I say? I, I would agree. Um, other just things just to say. Nothing good happens in the dairy library. Uh, nothing good happens in dairy. Burn the dairy library to the ground. Uh, maybe burn dairy to the ground. Poor Mike Hanlon. Just hit me, hit me with high level. Just what, did, what was your overall impression of this book? 
You know, that's an interesting question because it changed. When I first read the book or the first third of the book, I was really weighed down by the insomnia, which is kudos to Stephen King. It made me feel tired. It took me a long time to get into the book because that feeling made me, it made me feel really uncomfortable. The slog of, of taking on Ralph's insomnia as the reader. And then of course, as soon as we get into tower references, um, it piqued my interest. And I mean, it really does get wild. I mean, it goes off the rails. Uh, the fact that, you know, you find out you're in dairy within the first couple of chapters that, that, I had no idea. I mean, to, to be honest with you, I didn't know anything about this book at all coming into this, except for one thing. It's mentioned one time in the Dark Tower series. It, and it is when, um, oh, what's his name? Moses. Moses Carver gives Roland a copy of the book Insomnia and tells him to read it. And Roland throws it away because he thinks it's going to throw them off the path of the beam. When in fact, it would have helped them in certain ways. So that piece, how it's directed, it directly connected to the tower, I completely forgot about. But Moses gives him the book. And I was like, oh my God, the right. That's right. This book is, is in the series. And it's later on, obviously. Um, and so I, th I think it's hard for me not to be connected to the Dark Tower references, to, to the random, to the purpose, to the literal tower and Roland being mentioned, to the connection with Deepno and the fact that, you know, that Ed is a distant relative of Aaron Deepno and the fact that, like, uh, that again, we're in Derry. Derry is this representation of true evil, of, of Derry being on the broken path of the turtle, at least, or the beam of the turtle, as, as far as I'm concerned. I know we're going to get into that. I'm, I'm so hype about this. Keep no, no, going, no. brother. Keep going. Uh, but but it, it, it's hard for me not to love the book because of the tower connections. Is it, has it been my favorite read? Not necessarily. I love the book. It's a great book. Has it engrossed me the way Salem's Lot and It and the rest of the Tower books have, if I'm being honest, no. I think it's why it took me so long to read. That is very fair. I mean, we went from The Dark Tower, our favorite book series of all time, rereading it, having read it before, mm -hmm. to Salem's Lot and It. Both are considered by Stephen King constant readers and by critics to be American masterpieces yeah. of literature. Yeah. Like Salem's Lot and It are two considered two of the best horror books, It in particular, to Insomnia, which is not considered to be on that level, and probably for a reason. It isn't as good as It. It isn't as good as Salem's Lot. It isn't as good as The Dark Tower. But, you know, all that to be said, I mean, I still loved it. Like, I don't, I don't want to get the impression that it's not a great book and that I didn't really enjoy myself. It's just like, you're right. When we compare it to the things that we've read so far, it was the more difficult one for me to get through. Yeah, this one doesn't have its own zeitgeist around it. This one is responding to the zeitgeist that King has already created. Right, right. and responds in an incredible way. However, this was, in my opinion, an amazing book. This was one of the few times... We've been reading books together for a while now. 
This may be the first time I finished before you. That's what, exactly. And that's what I mean. That's exactly what I mean. It's funny you use that barometer because normally I'm like, oh yeah, I've, I've been done for a week or so because I'm also a fast reader. And again, it took me almost a month to get through that first part because I felt, I would fall asleep. I told Laurel, Laurel came out one day. I was sitting out front. If, for those who don't know, Derek and I are neighbors. We live quite literally next door to each other in South Philadelphia. And so we're connected. We, we share a wall. It would literally. And so I'm sitting out front reading insomnia. It's, it's, it's the fall. I'm just wearing like pants and a t-shirt because, and Laurel comes out and she goes, Oh, trying to stay awake. I was like, yeah, I am because it's because the first part of this book would put me to sleep. And, and again, I, I think it's pretty brilliant that that's what happened because I felt Ralph's insomnia. It was palpable. It just took me forever to read. What I liked about the first, you know, two parts of this book, what kept me in, engaged, and there's nothing wrong. I'm not saying you're wrong. Obviously, you had the reaction you had to the first parts of this book, and that's totally valid and fair. I think you're saying I'm wrong. But for me, what I liked was Stephen King engaging in the language of mystery. And I really thought a whole bunch of this book, until they meet Clotho and Lechis, the first two fates, this book is a mystery. A pure, what is going on, trying to figure it out. Why, it, why does he have this insomnia? And I know I'm reading a Stephen King book, and I know it's not run-of-the-mill insomnia. So why does he have this insomnia? What's happening with Ed? What's the deal with these auras? Is, is Ralph, is this just really a book about Ralph going insane? Mm. Or is there something more to this? Mm -hmm. uh, is Ralph, are Ralph and Ed, are they suffering from the same mental illness? Because Ed says to Ralph, hey, watch out. You've seen the colors. What'll happen when you start seeing the doctors? And it's, it's very likely that that is the case. And I was very into what's actually happening right. here. Compared to other Stephen King books, which wrap you into the minds of the character, this character is going through both a trauma in the loss of his wife, mm -hmm. as well as the psychological fallout and the insomnia, and then the ensuing mystery. And that kept me going through the pace of it. Sure. For me, I was sure. really like, I got to know what's happening here. This book, until they meet the, the two doctors, one and two, the two fates, this book is very not supernatural. Oh, absolutely. And it was very human, and it was a very human mystery. Except now, for it being in Derry. It's the only thing I was like, eventually, something, something really fucked up is going to happen. Like, we're in Derry, let's be honest. Yep, you absolutely. Know? I also like, though, how the three fates thematically interlock with the theme of sleep and the theme of death. And really, I think there's a cyclical nature of... Life, death, and re rebirth. Ancient people long understood that life operated on cycles. They understood the cycle of the stars, mm -hmm. the moons, the sun, the cycle of life, right. of death, right. of rebirth. They used dead things to fertilize the fields. They like understood the cycles, cycles. Almost like wheels. Like wheels. They understood the cycles of the seasons and how those operated and what is sleep if not a symbolic form of life, death, and rebirth? Mm -hmm. 
when you are awake, you are alive. Mm-hmm. When you die, you go into a symbolic sleep, and then you were reborn the next day, mm-hmm. renewed and refreshed. This cycle is mirrored in the abortion debate, which happens. The central political issue driving dairy apart is abortion. And in the 90s, that was pretty rampant. Still right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a major case going to the Supreme Court as we speak, which could overturn Roe v. Wade. It's insane. It is. And that's happening right now. And what is the abortion debate, if not a debate over that very cycle? Right. Saying that, hey, listen, if you are not allowing rebirth, birth to happen, you're interrupting that cycle, mm-hmm. hence you're doing something wrong. And that is the argument of the, the, the pro-lifers. So the, the debate over the abortion thematically linked to the problem of sleep, and then we enter in the fates, who you have three of them, life, death, and rebirth, in threes, forming this cycle, and you have these three fates locked itself into this idea of what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be alive when someone dies? What does it mean to prevent and stop death? What deaths are good deaths versus deaths that are bad deaths? And this couches that debate very literally in the the confluence of the random versus the purpose. Right. That the good deaths happen with the purpose. Mm-hmm. Those that the two doctors meet, they respect the people, they kiss them, they cut their lifeline, and they send them on to the next life. Versus, <coughs> versus Atropos, who is messing with things for fun and sadistic reasons, right. and cutting lifelines when maybe they wouldn't normally be cut, which would be then characterized as a bad death. Right. And this crystallizes this main character, Ralph. Ralph is such an amazing character. One, this is the first time in all of the Stephen King books that we've read where we're really in one character's head and pretty much just this one character. We learn a ton about Lois. We learn a lot about Bill and Lidecker. Right. We learn a lot about these characters, but for the most part... We are with and in Ralph's head and seeing what Ralph sees throughout most of this story. Right. And that's very unique for Stephen King. And we're getting Ralph's take on things. What is Ralph? Ralph feels like he's being pushed into this narrative. Ralph feels like he doesn't have any control. Ralph feels like he doesn't have any free will. And what does Ralph do at the climax of the story is he takes control of the fates. Mm -hmm. He takes control of the cycle and says, I will give myself so an innocent baby can live. Right. And says, this is how I will insert my will into fate itself. The random and the purpose had to bow to Ralph's will. What a great protagonist. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I also, I mean, his ultimate choice, right? Because to Ralph, though, especially in that epilogue, his life with both Carolyn and Lois, you know, the two closest people to him in his lifetime, he's lived a full life as far as he's concerned. He's lived a life of privilege. He's lived a life that's fulfilling to him and cares so deeply about Helen and Natalie that he's willing to give that life up 
so that this child can go through their own wheel of cop, you know, to, to put it relatively on the nose, you know, to, to, to put themselves through the random or the purpose and see where Natalie comes out. Which is awesome. Yeah. And, and entirely selfless. And it's also him being like, okay, I know these long timers have been telling me what to do. No more. No. I'm going to take control of my own fate. I am going to tell everyone, including fate itself, how this is going to go down. And I'll tell you, I, you know. I, I mean, he literally torture, tortures a member of the three fates. Right. And, and cuts and, off his ear. Right. And, and is just as predatory and just as mean and nasty as Atropos is in that moment. Because he has to stoop to that level. He has to get on the level of the fates. You know, what I really enjoy about it is Stephen King has a wild way of uh, justifying human nature and just how much strength and just how much power we as humans can wield, both positively and negatively, that we affect the balance pretty directly. And I like this idea of, I mean, every single character that I've ever read in a Stephen King novel, be it somebody like old Dorrance in this novel, somebody who's just a sage, who's an oracle in a way. I care about each and every person that Stephen King introduces. Patrick Danville's mother, we, we hear from for the first time. And I, I, I want to know about her story. I want to know about I want to know about Lois's dead husband. I want to know about Carolyn Roberts. I want to know about these people who I'm never going to find out about. And I think part of that strength is that Stephen King, throughout all of his mysticism, throughout all of his mythology, throughout all of this, the spiritual, all of the fucking crazy horror that he writes, he makes me understand the human condition and what people are willing to do for each other to preserve that condition better than anyone I've ever read. I would say amen to that. I would also add on top of that is that he is the voice of postmodernist Americana. Mm -hmm. He understands something about America writ large that, and he doesn't always directly tackle it head on as he does in this book, but he understands something about it really great when it comes to, for example, the debate about abortion. One thing that Lidecker says to Ralph as they're talking about it in the police, um, police station. And Man, what a great scene. Lidecker says, shit, no abortion rights are safe in Maine and in dairy. No matter what Susan Day says at the civic center Friday night, this is about whose team is the best team about whose side God's on. It's about who's right. I wish they'd just, I wish they'd all just say, we are the champions and go get drunk, end quote. And to put a little more context to it, what they were protesting was the moving of the Women's Center, mm -hmm. uh, forget the name of it, it's supposed to be- Woman like, Care. Woman Care. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to stand in for, um, oh God, I'm blanking on the name of the actual center's, Planned Parenthood, pardon me. Right. Supposed to Correct. stand in for Planned Parenthood, Correct. right? 
and that the pro-lifers were trying to get it moved. And what Lidecker is saying, there's no chance legally they could ever get it moved. Right. It's going to stay exactly where this is. And I think about current American political discourse that we have. And right now, regardless of who's right or wrong about facts, we're all about our teams right now and being on our teams and winning and proving what team we are on. Right. Here, here is King in the 90s, a long time away from 2021, and kind of roughly getting the Trumpist progressive debate down pat. We don't want to listen to each other. It's more about being who's right and proving that you're smarter, better, and stronger than the other guy. By force. The other thing that I thought was really eerily prescient, there were roughly 2,000 people at the Civic Center that Ed Deepno was targeting with a plane that he wanted to use as a weapon. Mm. This happened, this book was written in 94, and it's going to be seven years later where 2,000 people are going to die when a plane is used as a weapon in 9-11 in another political act of terror, though not domestic terrorism and right. not about abortion, right. still an act of terrorism by plane that killed 2,000 people. And it's like, how did Stephen King know that's how terrorism would happen well, in America? You know, I mean, America in the 90s, look, I was a... Small child, you know. I mean, you were a, you were a child, and then moving into into your teen years. The nineties wasn't the best time. In, in I mean, in certain in certain views, it was right for like suburban kids like myself, suburban white kids. It was pretty. It was super privileged. But but let's 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 couch this. The Cold War was over. Right. America won. The dot com boom had happened. Right. The economy has never been stronger in all of American history than right. it was. And it was kind of like, we've defeated evil. Yeah, no, not at all. And here is, <laughs> and th it, that is the time that's called Pax Americana, is right. the 90s. Right. You know, yes, there was the Gulf War. Yes, there was suffering. And yes, there were, you know, racial injustices and economic and ecological injustices happening. But it, it was our generation's golden years. But it was basically. considered to be one of the greatest times to be an American. And you know, yet... And here's King being like, bullshit. Well, and yet, you know, you're still in the height of the AIDS epidemic in the early 90s. You're in the height of the, you know, self-induced American government crack epidemic. Uh, you, you know, there's, there's... You're in the middle of so much change in the 90s socially the way that music was changing grunge was huge it was an anti-establishment decade you know what i mean so in the arts and culture things were changing against that way of life you know and on and 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 throw the abortion debate on top of it my god in the 90s it was fucking volatile throw on top the fact that you know the guy that drove the van into the world trade center in the 90s so there was already these inklings and 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 these examples of what was to come and i just think king he's a smart enough individual to recognize that and sees that you know it's it's going to get worse before it gets better you know i i i just that's the way i see him as as kind of our a, a sage in a way or it's going to get worse and just keep getting worse yeah yeah it never gets better. Maybe it just does not get better. Oh, that's cynical. We're Stephen King fans. It's of course just a it's wheel. cynical. <laughs> it is. And yes, 9-11 uh, was not 
homegrown terrorism. And in the 90s, homegrown terrorism was a big thing. Very You weird. had the, uh, the Tulsa, Oklahoma. The Oklahoma City bomber? Yeah. Um, McVeigh, if I uh-huh. memory, sir, if my memory serves correct, I part of me. correct. Yeah, Timothy McVeigh, yes. who did that. So this is very much in the vein of that. But I also just enjoyed how Lidecker, who had no dog in the abortion fight whatsoever, was simply about, I want to keep the town safe from violence. Well, he's a cop. And he was just like, uh, this really isn't about saving this clinic because no. the clinic's not going anywhere. No. This is about something else. And as someone who has fought for liberal progressive causes, such as a woman's right to choose, is there a time in place where I just want to be right rather than doing what's actually correct? Do I just want to... Mm-hmm. Do I just want to pat myself on the back about how clever I am oh, and well, how that's smart whole, I am? That's an entire white liberalism concept in and of itself that we could do a whole episode on. But Lidecker is talking about that as being deeply problematic, and I thought that was interesting. Well, but it also, yes, and it highlights the cynicism of a person like Lidecker, right? It, it highlights the cynicism of a person who's been a cop and it, now a detective in a small town like Derry, who only at this point in time, not even a decade ago, sunk. You know, like if, to this guy and to a lot of these people who live in Derry, I'm sure being cynical is relatively normal. And having that kind of outlook and that view on life, it, I mean, no wonder why Derry's targeted by the Crimson King multiple times. No wonder. Yeah, I mean, Ralph says this of Derry. Ralph opened his, ma- his mouth to ask if there had been many threats, but he supposed he already knew the answer to that. He lived in Derry for 70 years, off and on, and he knew it was a dangerous machine. There were a lot of sharp points and cutting edges just below the surface. This was true of a lot of cities, of course, but in Derry, there had always seemed to be an extra dimension of ugliness. Helen called it home, and it was his home too, but... So that's a really interesting quote, and a way to end that quote, because something I've been meditating on, if, if you'll permit me, I think we should move into talking about dairy. Let's absolutely do that. Let's talk about dairy. So I, you know, I talked in It about dairy being evil, uh, inherently evil. And the other thing that that quote specifically makes me think about is that Derry is not a home. Derry never feels like home to me, for anyone. It feels like the residents of Derry are living in a foreign land. And part of that, I feel like, is directly connected to this idea that Derry, and I have wrote this down, I said Derry is, has always been, and always will be evil. And that, and honestly, I know you and I have talked about it. I can't wait for this part of the discussion, but that I really, there is nothing right now that convinces me otherwise, especially through the lens that the levels of the tower in this book, instead of representing entire universes, represent both a plane of existence and a level of consciousness in our reality, in the reality that you and I live in. At least that's the way that I read it. 
from this perspective. So to me, Derry, I mean, look, it's incredibly reminiscent of it. You, I mean, there, there, there are mention of the deadlights. There's a mention of, I mean, Atropus is so close to Pennywise in certain ways and yet, and yet different, but Derry to me still feels like its own independent character, a little less directly involved in this book than in it. Cause it's not mentioned as much in this book, but it's omnipresent. It's always there. Derry never goes away. That energy never goes away and bad shit. I mean, they, they constantly reference the flood that happened in the, in the time, in the time, you know, of, of it. I mean, Ralph, during the first half of the Losers Club would have been what, like 33, our age? You know what I mean? And so, like, this man's lived in this place. He can't get out of it. It almost feels like a prison in, in, in a strange way. And so, to me, and, and, and one other point I want to use to back up my theory that, that Derry will always be evil and that is a bit of a prison is, and, and, and we had, um, just to give some reference to those listening, we had asked today on Twitter if, if anybody wanted us to talk about certain parts of the book, and Mike Hanlon came up from, from one of our one of our uh, our followers. Yeah, let me just read the, the comment. So, because uh, I have it up here, so Calgacus, hopefully I said that correctly, eighteen seventy five, said when we asked one how Mike Hanlon got screwed, still the only loser not to make something of himself, and two, Derry is the setting. In it, we are led to believe it was Pennywise that surrounded Derry in evil. In Insomnia, Derry still, still feels quite evil. So is it Derry or Pennywise that made it so? And I had commented back that we had actually talked about this in our episode of It. But what's really interesting is that Mike Hanlon comment. I, I just want to also say before you go, thank you so much. Seriously, my goodness. Thank you. I have a one-track mind. But yeah. thank you so much for bringing those questions. Because it made me think about Mike. Mike is briefly mentioned, but again, he's stuck in Derry. He is a cog in the wheel of Derry while he is alive. And the thing is, is that there are certain people that can't get out of Derry, don't feel like it's home, and Ralph Roberts is one of those people. And so to me, like Mike Hanlon, is he one of the protectors of the beam? Is he a piece, is he a grand Part of this quartet overall, I have no idea. But that perspective that he does, he gets fucked again. He's in Derry again. Again, he's never left. The guy's never left because I don't think he can. I think his fate is tied directly to Derry. All right. I I want to say a few things about the subject. Please hit me. One, with the question about Mike who didn't make something of himself. Librarians are super important. Oh no, he did. It's not that he didn't make something of himself. I'm not, I don't even comment on that. I just mean the no, fact. Let, let me just say, like, he's not screwed out of life because he's a librarian. No, being a librarian is a great profession. No, but he you don't has, make a lot of money, but it's no. a really important thing. A librarian, but, but he's a librarian in, in a town. That's, that's utterly, I mean, possessed to for life. I'm going to go out there and say this. Derry is not evil in Insomnia. I don't get the sense that Derry is evil. I disagree with that interpretation. 
And I will give you my reasons why. The fates exist in this universe, Mm -hmm. the three fates, and they are everywhere. Everyone will eventually die. The question is, is your death random or is your death part of the purpose? Which isn't to say your death has meaning, but you got to get to a point where you died of natural, more naturalist causes compared to just randomly. Everything that happens in insomnia, especially if you're a Taoist, like we are, if you're on the path of the beam, like we are, everything that happens in Derry sets the conditions so that Roland can take the tower and save it from the Crimson King. None of that is evil. There are people that die in between. There's suffering, and then there's evil. Ralph suffers in this book. The fates make him to suffer. And when Ralph even says to the fates that he thinks, well, hold on, this is a raw deal. I don't think you are giving us any choice. I don't think we have free will. What they say back to him is, you mustn't think so. It's simply what you call freedom of choice is part of what we call Ka, the great wheel of being. I think the debate about whether Derry is or is not evil, from the lens of the tower, you have to, in my opinion, call it part of the great wheel of being. It's part of the wheel of Ka, and because it's part of the wheel of Ka, there will be suffering. It will go back to where it began Mm -hmm. again, Mm -hmm. and Derry was founded on the remains of Pennywise's coming to Earth. Mm -hmm. So there is an evil tint to it. But this book, Derry itself, does not fight our hero. Derry does not slow down our hero. Rather, it is these external long-timers coming from Mm -hmm. the tower who are manipulating the events this time. Whereas Derry, Pennywise is so infused with Derry in it that the town and Pennywise become one, mm-hmm. and it all is working against the losers. Mm-hmm. In this instance of the book, or of, of Derry, pardon me, in this book, I don't get that same sense. You know, the only place, so I completely agree with you. I, I think it's an incredible outlook to have. The only place that I push back is that if it weren't an inherently evil place, I don't think the Crimson King could exist there. And so the fact that the Crimson King has targeted Derry specifically more than once, because we know that Pennywise is connected to the Crimson King. We know that he's literally taking space within this town. To me, that's the only thing that solidifies that I still think, even though it's a part of the wheel, it is on the evil spectrum because the Crimson King constantly finds a home in this town. Maybe because he just wants to kill Patrick. It could be. It could be. But Patrick is not a thought when Pennywise is around. If you're the Crimson King, depending on your level of the tower and your level and perception of time, you may know that eventually Patrick will be there, so you plant Pennywise, the child eater. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting. Pennywise, the child eater... Versus the abortion debate, 
with the child eaters? Absolutely. No, I don't. I don't take anything away from that. If if dairy itself were so evil incarnate that it would be so evil that everything would be corrupted and everything everybody that would stay there would be corrupted, it wouldn't be able to produce the heroes. Then maybe it's just such as Ralph, sure, and Mike, sure, and and Patrick. So then maybe well, but but there has to be a balance to evil. So even if it's inherently evil, there will constantly be those who fight against that evil within that evil, if that makes sense. It does, because cause a wheel, baby. Yeah, and so that's why I think it's, in, in a strange way, I think it's both. And that's a, it feels like a cop-out. But at the same time, it's like, I mean, to me, this town is targeted. Because I know for a fact that dairy comes up in other places throughout Stephen King's repertoire as well it's not just these two books and so there has to for me for king there's some significance in dairy maine that's outside of that wheel because to me to just throw it inside of the wheel of con just like it is what it is i i accept that but i don't know i don't think it would be so specifically targeted by such agents of evil if there weren't i mean i mean that whole line about settlers just without even thinking picking the worst possible place to settle that type of energy i think it draws you in i think we're both right (laughs) (laughs) i don't know there is no right or wrong there is no right or wrong we're interpreting stephen king who is a really weird lovecraftian sci-fi fantasy horror postmodern like, you know, and we like, never like, I feel like it's it was so rare that you and I disagree. I'm using air quotes because we're not really disagreeing, but that we disagree this much <laughs> about a theme in the book. One thing that's similar in dairy from Pennywise to Atropos is that the evil is usually most personified through corrupting people. Oh, absolutely. And that it is yeah. people that enable evil because mm-hmm. Pennywise existed in dairy long before there were people. That's right. And all Pennywise did was eat and sleep and eat and sleep. Then when people came around, that's when it got kicked into truly horribleness and similar Atropos. What does he do? He corrupts at deep and turns this man into a monster and turns him into a monster. The scariest scene in the book to me was when Charles Pickering. Oh, absolutely. That scene in the library goes and, and, and it's just tapping Ralph with the knife. Absolutely. That's the scariest scene in the entire book to me. And there's nothing supernatural about it. No. And, and again, and we've, we've spoken about this in, in previous episodes. I think that's the scariest people. The most evil people in King books are, are humans are people that we know in our own lives, people that we can recognize when we recognize ourselves in some of these characters, you know, I, I know that there have been things in my life that I've taken as, as vitriolically as Ed Deepno has and have been that passionate where you're blinded by what you believe, you know, and I, 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 I never for once feel bad for him. Dude's an abuser, whether he's being controlled or not. Like it's hard for me to, to, to relate or feel bad for Ed Deepno until they're in that plane scene. And he recognizes just just how used he's been and how deeply terrified he is about what's happening. 
And I think you see that human side that's so easily controlled by these outside forces, if that makes any sense. It does. I think, I think we should feel bad for Ed Deepno. I mean, he's completely being used the there, entire time. There is a sense that Ralph has of being used, being pushed into a tunnel, that he is not really in control, and that very same sense that fate is dictating Ralph's action is happening to Ed. It just so happens that Ralph is a stronger person than yeah. Ed. Oh, completely. But a weaker person would break, and Ed breaks. If immortal beings who control when people die start tinkering with your life, mm-hmm. it's not crazy to think that they're going to beat you. And they beat Ed. Before that tinkering, Ed is considered to be a great member of society. Right. Was there maybe some like harsh anti-feminism festering in him that they took advantage of? Yes. Most likely. Most likely, but we don't know. Let me read this quote here about Ralph. A queer sense of fatalism was creeping over Ralph, and with it an intuitive understanding of the forces which now surrounded them. It was one he could have done without. It hardly mattered if those forces were beneficent or maligned, random or purpose. They were gigantic, and that's what mattered. And they made the things Clotho and Lachesis had said about choice and free will seem like a joke. He felt as if he and Lois were roped to the spokes of a gigantic wheel, a wheel which kept rolling them back to where they had come from, even as it took them deeper and deeper into this horrible tunnel. Mm -hmm. And if Ed is also a spoke on that, yeah, no, we shouldn't excuse his crimes, Mm -hmm. but we should feel bad for him, right? Yeah, I mean, I think through that lens, for sure. King just makes it really easy to hate him. And he's well-written. Un- you know, until the end. Until the end. When he sees, when, when he has that moment of clarity and realizes how, how he's been used. And the fact that he's linked to that picture of his wife and child. Who, who this entire time, he's used as the reason why he's in this fight. You know. And despite how deep into his madness, how much he's being abused, he never stopped loving his wife and child, even though he's the reason his wife and child are not in his life. No one else is. Right. He's the reason he still is capable of love. That in and of itself is a redemptive quality, at least narratively speaking. Sure. I would agree with that. And, And I just think... One of the lessons of this book is like, you know, we all kind of deserve to give each other a little wiggle room and grace in this thing called Ka, which is just churning like a relentless wheel. Yeah. If we're all in it, we all got to give each other a little bit of space. When Ka makes us do something crazy, maybe the resulting response isn't purge the beast from society. It's like, Okay, well, you really, really messed up, but Ka does that to all of us. It's okay. Mm. Yeah, no, I think it's an interesting way to look at it. I mean, I certainly hadn't looked at it that way before. I'm actually had not come into this as an Ed Deepno apologist. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of naturally came about in the conversation. <laughs> I mean, I, I understand, especially if he's under the control of the Crimson King and 
I think the way that I looked at it originally was it just felt like that was a bit of a cop out that we were we we were excusing his actions because he was under the control of a higher power and he sh- he is not like so like the the two good fates say there's always choice right he is not free of guilt no he does not get a pass on his crime he still makes those choices but what i am saying is that we should still as readers empathize with him sure like so if he existed in reality if this story were true if it wasn't a fiction we should still and ed deep somehow lives he still goes to jail oh immediately right he still should be punished for his crimes but we shouldn't hate him. We should still empathize with him. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that makes a ton no, of sense. No, yeah, it does. Of course it does. I mean, because, especially if we're looking at it through the lens of the human condition and the fact that, like, sure, everybody makes mistakes, especially if we're going to link it to a wheel. Of, if it's out of our control, excuse me, out of our control, if it's just Ka, then you can... But but see, but this is the thing I've battled with, too, is like, if we just leave it up to Ka, if we just leave it up to fate, then it's really difficult for we as individuals to take responsibility for our actions. And so I don't necessarily think that King always agrees that Ka, like, we've talked about this, like, is Ka good or bad? It just is. It's neither of those things. It just is. And there will be suffering. Right. And that is a given. And there will be joy. Both things are given. They're the given circumstances. And then it's everything in between that we question. And so it's like, yeah, I empathize with Ed from that metaphysical sense. But if he still has some semblance of choice, he still chose to beat his wife. And it's hard for me. That's a really difficult for, thing for me to look past. But I hear what you're saying. And I, again, I don't necessarily disagree. You know, if I'm looking at it from the lens of Ka. Let me say it like this. I don't want or think we should look past that. No. Oh, I don't think you're saying that at all. I don't think it should be like, hey, I beat his wife, but Ka. Right. Like, I don't want to mean it in that no, way. No, and what I'm saying is, is that... My my fear is that that is how a lot of folks would think. You know Ab- what I mean? Abusers only abuse because they are suffering. Right. It's a power struggle. And and it's they're weak. It is okay when someone is suffering to say, I'm sorry you're suffering. Oh, it, and it, I wish you weren't. It's more than okay. It's, that should be the response. But it, you know, from a just a pure like logistical moral sense. Yes, you are still, if you commit a heinous act, like beating your family, sending your goons to kill someone, trying to blow up an entire civic center full of people who mm-hmm. disagree with you about an issue, these are unforgivable acts. Um, and acts that we should not forgive Ed for. And look, but manipulation... That that, go ahead, I'm sorry. It just doesn't stop us from empath, empathizing with the fact that King shows him as someone who is suffering in a similar way that Ralph is. Yeah, yeah, of course. And that, and I, I, I applaud Stephen King for making a character as complex as Ed Deep. No, I thought he was going to be in the book more than he was, to be completely honest with you. Um, and I, you know, I, it, it's interesting to me 
that he is a distant relative of Aaron Deepno, who is nothing like this person. Is that confirmed that they are relatives? From everything that I've read, it has been confirmed that he is a distant relative of Aaron Deepno. Interesting. Yeah, and I and I I if you go back and read the tower, I think it makes sense. And we're talking distant relatives, so this could be like second, third cousin. This could just be like we share the same last name. We're in the same family, but we're not close. It could be, you know, his his uncle. You know, it could be somebody he just has no relationship with. But the use of the name Deep No is no accident. Yeah, it's especially on after the wastelands was exactly. written. Yeah, exactly. King knew that these were going to be linked, but then, okay, this is getting very tower specific. Oh, let's go. How does it work if Stephen King, the character, is writing books in Keystone Earth, and they're reading Insomnia, and Aaron Deepno is in Keystone Earth, and and then they so. That, that Man, I don't know. You just <laughs> broke my fucking brain. I, I, it's a great question. That it would have to be this is where a I non-related say, deep new, right? Uh, no, not necessarily. Not necessarily because in the tower, Aaron Deepno is a real person. And King is writing his, his distant relative during this time in Insomnia. That would mean, though, in Keystone Earth, the events of insomnia didn't happen. On Keystone Earth, sure. Which, our Aaron Deepnew is on Keystone Earth. I mean... I don't know. <laughs> hey. Did I, did, I get, did I get too deep? Did I, did no, I get my hands I don't, too deep I don't into the mug you, there? I don't think you did at all. I think it's a different discussion. It is. I totally derailed <laughs> this. <laughs> but no, it's, but it's Okay. <laughs> Again, th- but this is the complexity of this, of the Dark Tower. All right, Towerist, I know you're listening. Yeah, tell us. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? What Deep New is Ed Deep New versus Aaron Deep New? Are they related? Because if Roland has to read Insomnia in Keystone Earth, it would lead me to believe that there is in the Tower, Aaron Deep New, the character, who, and then there is. Ed Deepnew, who's in Insomnia, who doesn't exist in Keystone Earth. And then the Crimson King doesn't ever come to Derry, which means the events of it do not happen on Keystone Earth. Which could be the reason why Roland throws the book away and thinks it's going to throw them off and not actually lead them to the Crimson King in the tower. So in a way, it actually makes sense that King would do that. Because Roland senses there's something off about this right and says no instead of actually reading it because i don't want to go to dairy holy sh- Yo, i think that's it i think we figured it out no i think that's it so i think the events of it and the events of insomnia happen on an earth that's not keystone earth correct that stephen king is channeling through gan right and writing right and they present this to Roland to consider. So they aren't the same deep news. Those are two deep news from two different earths. Interesting. Well, and then, you know, and what makes sense about that is if we're looking at the levels of the tower from the book series, then it is different universes, each level. So that would make sense. 
So the events of Insomnia and It are on a different level of the tower than the Keystone Earth that Jake and Roland and Eddie... Well, then the question becomes, why would King use that connection? It's you know I don't know. That's I think it's a discussion for another day. We had not planned to talk about this at, at all. all. This is a total total curveball. Yeah, but this make this is great. I mean, it makes sense again reading these books from the lens of the tower. So if it if the information I have is incorrect, which it could be, again it's the internet. You never know because there's not a whole lot of uh, of dramaturgical inter- information about insomnia. It doesn't exist. Because I don't think a lot of people read this book. Honestly, if you weren't a Tower fan or like a Super King fan, I mean, look, to give you an example, I thought that this was the, I thought that this was the book or the, you know, the movie Insomnia with Al Pacino and Robin Williams? No, I've never seen it. Oh, it's, oh, oh, it's great. That's what I thought this was. And I was like, no, these two things have nothing to do with each other. But there has to be a reason, I think we already figured it out, that King puts in, Insomnia, the book, in the Dark Tower series. Wow. But then, hold on. It gets harder because Patrick Danville... Right, because Patrick's a real character. In the Dark Tower. Oh, man. So Patrick Danville, who is the kid they're trying to save, is the kid who gets captured by Dandelo, tortured, that Roland and Susanna save, who ultimately helps Roland defeat the Crimson King. Do you know what I think we just did? I think we... Broke my fucking brain? Uh, yeah, I think we disproved, proved, and then disproved our own theories. I well, think you and I just sense. did. And you know what? We're keeping all of it. We're keeping all of it. This is this is not being cut. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, I mean, seriously, Wheel of Call listeners, we, we this was not on the docket of things to talk about. We're gonna need some help out there. What earth does it and insomnia? It and insomnia happen on the same earth. Is that the same earth that Jake comes from? Mm. And what earth is Patrick Danville in? How does this all connect in terms of a continuity? I'm not saying this that I think this is a plot hole. Au contraire. I think this is a riddle. Uh, Yeah. Written by King. Yeah. I don't think it's a, I don't think like King messed up and didn't get it right. No, no, no. I think there is a riddle here. No, everything he does is intentional. And I know King's thought of it because he's a freaking genius. Yeah. There's no way. I mean, especially a book that is this directly connected with references to the tower. Though I've got a sense that if we had Stephen King here and we asked him this, he would look at us and go, what are you fucking nerds? Maybe probably just enjoy the books. This (laughs) is exactly why podcasts like this exist so that nerds like us can break these book down books down in unnecessary ways. Okay. We are now off the rails. We are pushing time here. What else you got, brother? I mean, the other thing that I basically wanted to talk about in this book were the levels of the tower. And so this concept of the random and the purpose and how it relates to this book in in particular as it relates to the tower. And the fact that I was kind of blown away with 
the fact that in this world, the level of the, the levels of the tower change and shift. So now we're dealing with planes of existence, levels of consciousness versus literal universes. And so to me, and this might even answer some of the things that we just talked about. If the tower is able to change literal meaning, is the tower all-encompassing? Meaning that any theory about the tower is both correct and incorrect, if that makes sense. It does. That's because a good question. Because if, if, if King is able to write about the same context, excuse me, same concept, but in different theories, in one universe, it's, well, in one reality, I should say, Everything is a different universe. Every level is a different universe. In this reality, every level is a plane of existence. It's a different dimension. So it's a, a different explanation of a universe. You know what I mean? Is that confusing or does that make sense? Yeah, no, it, it may be both. It may be confusing and make sense sure, at the same time. Sure, sure. I've always liked the idea that the tower is a bit of a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Roland is looking for a physical place that he can, as a warrior, claim and fight evil and then say, I found my tower. Right. In this respect, the tower's a little more metaphorical because they are going up and down levels of consciousness. That's exactly what I was just about to say. And since they are going up and down levels of consciousness, they're perceiving that tower-esque. Whether they're seeing the real tower is as much up to the characters as whether or not Roland sees the real tower. And, and that begs the question, what is the real tower? The tower to me, this is Campbellian. If you're a fan of Joseph Campbell, which I am, and you've read A Hero with a Thousand Faces, he talks about the Axis Mundi. It is a place that exists where different spiritual and physical energies converge. The hero goes to the Axis Mundi to get rejuvenated, to learn a lesson, to gain a power, etc., so that they can go back onto their adventure and slay the, the dragon. To me, the tower is the Axis Mundi it is the center of all things Stephen King, and it is both energy as much as it is literal. Think of if you've seen the movie Avatar, when they commune with the tree that brings people back to life. That's a classic example of the Axis Mundi. Think of the cave Luke Skywalker goes into in Empire Strikes Back. That was, yep. That's an Axis Mundi, these places where... Physical barriers break down and spiritual barriers open up. The House think, of Black and White in Game of Thrones. The House of Black and White in Game of Thrones. Think of the well where Odin sacrifices his eye, Mimir's well, and he mm-hmm. drinks of primordial waters mm-hmm. and he learns the secrets of the runes. Mm-hmm. These are Axis Mundi places. The tower is the Axis Mundi Maximus. Right. It is the Axis Mundi where all things physical, metaphysical, transcendental become one. Mm. And it is experienced by Ralph and Lois through color. It's experienced through consciousness. Mm -hmm. 
it's experienced through fate, but for Roland, it's experienced as territory. It's experienced as a quest. So I think the tower can be all of these things at once, mm-hmm. which maybe answers the other question that we had. Sure. All of these realities blend. They're not separate. It's not a hard and fast rule where no. one is this and one is that. They're all one. It's like when, um, oh my God, I'm blanking on this name. He's my favorite character in the tower. The pair, Pear Callahan. Oh yeah. It's like when Pear Callahan takes vampire blood and is on a wanderless drunken journey, mm-hmm. killing vampires mm-hmm. and walking through different versions of earth. When he finally sees his axis Mundi, which for him is the vampire blood. Right. It's the idea that his faith was broken. Right. He just drunkenly wanders through realities. He wanders through these axis Mundis. So to me, that's what the tower really represents. Mm-hmm. And I really think in this, we are seeing it like it's omnidirectional. The idea of the tower to us seems rigid. It's vertical. It starts here and it goes there. But the tower, in essence, is multidirectional. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And I think it's easy to get stuck in the rigidity of, of it because we want, I think as readers, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if you feel this way, but I'm constantly trying to answer the question, what is the tower? Not how I get there, but what is it? What does it mean? What's the purpose? And if Kazuil will all get there eventually. This has been a great discussion. Oh, as always, what Wheel, a pleasure. Wheel of Ka has a Twitter, at Wheel of Ka. You can hit us up at Midnight Myth, as this is the sister podcast to the Midnight Myth. You can find me on Twitter, at Derek C. Jones 198. I think that's my Twitter handle. I believe so. I think that's right. Usually, this is when I would say long days and pleasant nights, which I do wish you all long days and pleasant nights. But there was a particular passage we thought would be a fitting end to this podcast. Mm. Steve, take it away. He was an amazingly competent artist already. Only four years old, or not. My little genius, Sonia sometimes called him. And his picture was much better than the colored-in poster on the other side of the sheet. What he had managed before the lights went out was work a gifted first-year art student might have been proud of. In the middle of the poster sheet, a tower of dark, soot-colored stone rose into a blue sky dotted with fat white clouds. Surrounding it was a field of roses so red they almost seemed to clamor aloud. Standing off to one side was a man dressed in faded blue jeans. A pair of gun belts crossed his flat middle. A holster hung below each hip. At the very top of the tower, a man in a red robe was looking down at the gunfighter with an expression of mingled hate and fear. His hands, which were curled over the parapet, also appeared to be red. Sonia had been mesmerized by the presence of Susan Day, who was sitting behind the lectern and listening to her introduction, but she had happened to glance down at her son's picture just before the introduction ended. She had known for two years that Patrick was what the child psychologist called a prodigy, and she sometimes told herself she had gotten used to his sophisticated drawings and the Play-Doh sculpture he called the Clay Family. Perhaps she even had 
to some degree, but this particular picture gave her a strange, deep chill that she could not entirely dismiss as an emotional fallout from her long and stressful day. Who's that? she asked, tapping the tiny figure peering jealously down from the top of the dark tower. Him's the Red King, Patrick said. Oh, the Red King, I I see. And who's the man with the guns? As he opened his mouth to answer, Roberta Harper, the woman at the podium, lifted her left arm. There was a black mourning band on it, toward the woman sitting behind her. My friends, Miss Susan Day, she cried. And Patrick Danville's answer to his mother's second question was lost in the rising storm of applause. Him's name is Roland, Mama. I dream about him sometimes. Him's a king, too.